morning, everybody. Thanks for being here on the day after. I hope you had a great Christmas with your family and friends yesterday. Good morning to everyone joining us online as well. Was it a good late night Colts win to cap off the Christmas joy? That was good, right? My phone was going off all day yesterday with the latest update on who would not be on the field playing. So they were asking for an extra measure of pastoral prayer and chaplaincy engagement in times of desperation. It was Gideon-like all day long yesterday, um, but proud of the guys, and uh, it certainly was Christmas joy, at least for the Indianapolis community to watch it that way. But before I jump into the message this morning, I want to take a moment and pray for a couple of situations. Many of you know Dan and Jesse Westlin. Dan serves as one of our elders. Dan and Jesse are always season ticket holders right back here, you know, three quarters of the way back on the aisle over there. And uh, this past week, both of them were diagnosed with COVID, and um, both of them have some health situations where it's just been a really tough um, week. Dan is in the hospital on oxygen. It's moved into COVID pneumonia, and so he's going to be in there a minimum of seven to ten days. Jesse, right, as far as I know, is still at home, though she's still battling a number of the symptoms. Her kids are caring for her well, I believe, but uh, I just thought we'd take a moment. We want to pray for the Westlands. Dan and Jesse, if you're watching today, we love you. We miss you. Uh, certainly want to pray for you and with you. And then just was chatting with Beth Granati before service. Beth's up here leading so wonderfully in worship. If you remember, she lost her father recently and her mother fell this past week and she's in varying stages of just challenging renal failure going on in her elderly years. And as Beth said, I think she's just kind of longing to be home, right? Beth, she's just longing to be home. Um, with her husband and with the Lord. And so just praying for Beth and the Granati family as they walk out, as many of you in caring for aging parents and that challenging season of life. And, and maybe you come in this morning with um, some difficult personal circumstances as you wrap up 2021. Uh, let's just lift these up before the Lord together. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, thank you that you're our sustaining strength. When the psalmist talks about, surely God is my help, the Lord is the one who sustains me, and that you say, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. And so, on behalf of the Westlands, for Dan and Jesse, who had all kinds of Christmas plans, and it's not unfolding like they wanted it to unfold, I just pray for healing grace for them, I pray for strength for them, I pray for peace for them, wisdom in all of the medical care going on with the Westland family. May they experience that companionship that you promise, Emmanuel, God with them in their time of need. And for Beth and her mother and the Granati family, we just lift up uh, her mom, especially today as she lay in a re rehab hospital today, that you will comfort her and strengthen her and that you will take her home the day, the time, the hour you've ordained, Lord, her days numbered, ordained, ordered by you. Thank you that she knows you and trusts you. Give Beth and her siblings wisdom and strength as they care uh, for this situation. And thank you that no matter what it is we walk in here with today, that we can lay at your feet, that you're a God who sees, who knows, who cares, who understands. And so, God, see our cries for help. Uh, we lean into you, our God, our Savior, and our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible near you, turn to Matthew chapter 2. I thought what we'd do this morning is talk about the day after. It's the day after for all of us, right? Um, the day after all the Christmas gatherings and festivities and meals and uh, fellowship with family. And I thought we'd talk about what was going on the day after for Mary, Joseph, and this newborn baby, Jesus. Because it's pretty significant. 
what was happening in their lives, and I think it'll be a good bridge for us as we wrap up 2021 and reflect on a couple of things from the first family's day after. In verse 11, we touched on this last Sunday, but in verse 11, it says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Now, on the coming to the house, that's the Magi and the festivities that were gathering um, where Jesus was born. And they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. So the first thing we see about what's happening the day after for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus is they had house guests. Did you have a house full yesterday, perhaps? Or you went to a house full? Someone was hosting, no doubt. And so they had house guests but it turned into a worship gathering. Now, as I know it's always wonderful when we get together with friends and with family and all that, but I think you'd agree with me it's fairly unique for Jesus and Mary and Joseph that their house guests um, bowed down and presented them with gifts. And no doubt folks bring gifts when they come and visit you at your home, and that's a common thing to do. But to bow down and to begin to worship, that would be a unique situation. And so this child is unlike any other child that has been born. And this is the long-awaited Messiah when the Magi say, Mary and Joseph, we believe your baby is the long-awaited Savior of his people. His name is Jesus. It is Emmanuel. It is God with us. And we bow and we bring our gifts and we offer our worship to you. So their house guests turn into a worship gathering. That's kind of the first setting there of what's happening the day after. And then Joseph has a dream. Verse 13, when they had gone, when the house guests had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Now, parenthesis here, they end up staying three to four years. So we'll come back to this in a moment, but it's a, it's a quite substantial interruption and disruption to their plans. So stay there until I tell you, it ends up three to four years. For Herod, this is Herod the Great, Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Remember earlier, Herod tried to tell the Magi, hey, could you go and give me a GPS on Jesus' location because I want to go and worship him. This is the real motive for Herod's search project. He doesn't want to worship him, he wants to kill him. Remember, we looked at that last Sunday, right? Because in Herod's mind, there's only one king. It's King Herod the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. He said he was the prince of peace. And so when you roll into Herod's palace and they're asking for where is the king, it tends to create some tension. When the sitting king is hearing from the guests, where is the king? He wants to eliminate whomever this is. And so he's on a search party. He sends out the mission, magi slash wise men, to go find them, but he wants to kill Jesus. So an angel steps in and says, hey, you need to take Jesus, hey, Joseph, take Mary, take Jesus. You got to head off to Egypt because Herod's going to kill him. Verse 14, so he got up. This is what Joseph did. Took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed there until the death of Herod. So this first thing we see is house guests turn into worship gathering. The second thing the day after for Joseph is he has a dream and it turns him into refugees. So all the wonderful refugee ministry that happens from Jesus' church, do you know all finds its roots right here? Jesus and Mary and Joseph is like a first family of refugees. 
They spent three to four years in Egypt, uprooted from their homeland, displaced from their culture and their environment, much like, right, so many movement of peoples all around the globe today. And isn't it something to look at, like, the one who understands most and best in that setting is Jesus. And Mary and Joseph, they understand what it's like. They know. And perhaps that's why Jesus' church has always been on the front line when it comes to caring for those who've been displaced and in need and uprooted and circumstances flipped on their lid. And so it's Jesus' people who often come in his name, carrying his heart for those in need. And this also is the backdrop for many of you, maybe raised in more liturgical environments, you know about the phrase, the slaughter of the innocents. You know where that phrase, this is where that phrase comes from. So Herod, because God is a step ahead of him, and he's telling Joseph, hey, take Jesus and Mary, get away to Egypt. Herod's fuming mad that he can't track Jesus down. And so he decides to issue an execution order for every boy under the age of two all around this area of Bethlehem. Execute them, slaughter them. This is the slaughter of the innocents. And historians say there would be, they would have been somewhere around two dozen boys who were executed at this time. Based on the population and general age grouping, they can say probably around 20 to 24 of boys were executed in the slaughter of the innocents. And you may see some churches who still place crosses out in their lawns to remember the slaughter of the innocents and to remember this moment when Herod, in his anger and rage to kill Jesus, decided to kill any other boy that was close to that age in that area to kind of make a statement about what his real motives were. So worship, uh, house guests turn into worship gathering they turn into refugees. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go to be refugees for three to four years. And then thirdly, Joseph has another dream. Three to four years later, after Herod died, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother. Does that sound familiar? Exactly. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, your homeland, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went off to the land of Israel. Now, for those of you who may not know how Herod died, I thought we'd just kind of look briefly at this is how Herod ended. You remember Herod who said, he's king. He's king of the Jews. He's prince of peace. He's the one who's going to, you know, kind of handle. He's going to have the last word. He's going to one who's going to exercise power, the title Herod the Great. So this is that guy. Here's how his life ended. Acts 12, verse 21. Herod's at a scene. He's wearing his royal robe, sitting on his throne, normal stuff, delivering a public address to the people. Verse 22. The people shout, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Merry Christmas, everybody. So that's how Herod the Great exits the story. And you know, I thought about on Friday night, we weren't lighting candles to Herod or Caesar. We weren't singing songs to Herod or Caesar. But back in that day, in that age, there was only one king, there was only one light, there was only one prince of peace in all of their eyes. It was Caesar and it was Herod. They were going to be beginning, middle, and end of the story. And here we are 2,000 years later. And Friday night, around 2 billion people in 190 nations were gathered, reading the stories, 
singing the songs, lighting the candles, to one King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to the true Prince of Peace, capital P, to Emmanuel, to the Savior, to this Christ child born on the outskirts of Bethlehem. It was all in His name, all done in His honor. And long since in the annals of history is Herod the Great. Not such a great ending, Herod. Because he was never supposed to be the center of the story, but Herod couldn't because his, Herod's kingdom was always bounded on all, all four sides by Herod. He couldn't see beyond himself to the larger story of what was going on. And so, that's what's going on the day after for the first family. Mary and Joseph and Jesus at a worship gathering, they become refugees, they're there for three or four years, we don't know a lot of details about those three or four years at all, they uproot and they come back after Herod dies and they continue on raising their young family. So I thought two reflections kind of bridging from their story into our story today for the day after. The first thing I wrote and I placed in your notes there is saying yes to God and His plans is often disruptive to our plans. Like, Mary and Joseph, no doubt, had, like many young families would have, they had plans for, what they had their first child. Joseph had, no doubt, kind of worked through all the emotional stuff he had to work through when he had to kind of get his heart wrapped around, hey, this child is really from the Holy Spirit, and yet I want you to raise, I mean, that whole thing that Joseph, he finally got himself to a place where he could be the father that God's called him to be and be the husband to Mary. And they have, they have young family plans. No doubt they were probably going to join the local synagogue and, and maybe they were going to start a young couples group, you know, newly married together. And maybe, he, maybe Joseph was looking forward to going on the men's retreat in the spring or something. And who knows, right? But he, they were a young family who had plans, who probably had certain dreams and hopes that they thought it was going to unfold. And then Three to four years, they're uprooted and sent to Egypt. And this is the picture, I think, that Joseph especially models in this day after narrative, that at the intersection of our plans and God is often disruption. Have you noticed this with God? Like, it's okay to map things out in life, but just realize that we're not nearly as in control as we think we are. And generally, if you've said yes to Jesus, and you've, if you've settled the discipleship question, hear this now, when you settle the discipleship question, you immediately move into the space of disruption. You say, why? Because the discipleship question yields the seat of authority. Everyone has to learn how to live from someone. And as a disciple of Jesus, we choose Jesus because he's the wisest and he's the best. He's the Savior, He's the Lord, He's the Alpha and the Omega. I choose Jesus because I've never met anyone like Jesus. I want Jesus running my life because He's the best. He's the best at it. He's not just good at like heaven, hell, salvation, sin, all that stuff. Yes, all of that. He's right about everything. He's right about how to raise kids and how to handle money and what to do with career path and how to deal with like hidden stuff in here. Jesus is right about everything. I choose Jesus. I said, Jesus, you teach me how to live. I've settled the discipleship question, and many of you here today have settled the discipleship question. When you settle the discipleship question, you yield the seat of authority. Here's a picture, like when your plans 
and your ways run into God's plans and God's ways, when there's a collision there, a disciple allows God's ways to shape and form your plans. That's what a disciple does. It's not wrong to have plans. It's not wrong to map things out. God just says, hold them loosely. Joseph would say, hey, hold them loosely. Like It wasn't in his plans to raise a, a child whom he didn't conceive. It wasn't in his plans to head off to Egypt for three or four years. But God's plans over Joseph's plans, and he chose surrender. This is, what, this is the posture of a disciple. Surrender. God's ways, he holds the final seat of authority. He gets the last word on things. Now, if you haven't settled the discipleship question, that doesn't make sense at all. And the, I think the, the choice seems pretty straightforward to me. You can choose to handle life your way, according to your agenda, your plans. You think you know best. You can run it the way you want to run it. In the language of an old hymn writer and poet, you can be the captain of your own soul. You can do that. Your profile would be Herod. He would be like the picture of like, he's, he's going to run it the way he wants to run it. He ran it the way all the way to the end. Even when people are saying he's a god on the throne, he was, he's captain of his own soul. You can do it your own way. You can decide you know best. Or you can say, you know what? I choose discipleship to Jesus. I'm going to surrender. I choose him. He's the wisest and the best. I choose to yield my ways to his ways. I choose, I covenant obedience on the front end before he lays out the map of whatever it's going to be. That's a disciple. It doesn't make sense unless you're a disciple. I get it. But I would just challenge you to say, you might want to think it through. Run the tape out on how it's going running your life in your own wisdom and strength. Just kind of run that out. Young people who are listening today, think this through because you have an invitation available to you to allow the God of the universe and the person of Jesus to run your life. And he's the wisest and the best. He is great, he's amazing, he's gracious, he's wise, he's kind, he's generous, he's faithful, he's good. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. But he puts the ball in our court and says, you choose. You choose who's going to run the show. But Joseph would say, just be... Be aware now, when you choose Jesus, <laughs> at the intersection of your plans and Jesus is called disruption. He's going to uproot some things. You're going to have some things mapped out the way you thought something was going to unfold. Have you noticed this with God? It often doesn't unfold that way. Not every time. I would just say most of the time. You say, well, what's he up to with that? I think there's a lot of things he's up to with that. Think about all that happens in our hearts in the space of disruption. If Joseph were here, I'm sure he would talk about all the formative things that happened inside of he and Mary in their young family when they're uprooted and displaced in Egypt for three or four years. All the prayer times, all the wondering, all the longings, all the searching, all the questions, all the unanswered stuff, all of that gets formed and shaped in that three to four years. And then when he comes back to move the story forward along, huh. No wonder that we see in Joseph very little narrative we have on Joseph's life, but here's the consistent theme we th see of him, obedience. He just does what the Lord asks him to do all the time, even when disruption seems to be the theme. So that's the first reflection, I think, for our lives today, and it's kind of rooted in this, right? When you think about Isaiah 55, 
Isaiah 55 is like the Old Testament, I think, would be like the theme song for Joseph's life. When Isaiah 55 says, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord Almighty. My plans are not your plans. And this is the key line. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and plans higher than your thoughts and plans. This is Isaiah 55 saying to Scientists today say the outer edges of the universe, 15.5 billion light years is what they can measure. 15.5 billion light years. So my simple translation of Isaiah 55 would be, God's ways are 15.5 billion light years beyond my ways. And a disciple chooses that as the seat of authority. Even when I don't see, even when I don't understand, even when I can't figure it out, I surrender. In that place of disruption, and I say, I let you get the final word. And that's what Joseph does. And that's the theme we see repeated in his life. Do you know there's not one recorded word of Joseph in the Bible? But we've got these four recorded instances of obedience. You don't get recorded words, you get recorded obedience of Joseph. And I put them there in your note sheet for you. Right? In Matthew 1, he takes Mary home as his wife. That's obedience 1. In Matthew 2, he takes the newborn to Egypt for three to four years. That's Matthew 2. In Matthew 2.15, they stay in Egypt until Herod dies. And then in 2.21, they return back to the homeland. Four recorded disruptions and four recorded, in a sense, immediate obedience of Joseph. I think he's a, he's a large soul that we know very little of his life other than just recorded, simple, immediate, responsive obedience to the disruptive plans of God on his life. I'm challenged by that. The second thing I wrote down, I put in your notes, that I think we can learn from this day after narrative is just because you, just because you can't see God working doesn't mean he isn't near. I want you to think about this with me. Jesus was in the womb of Mary for nine months. <laughs> Nobody saw him for nine months, yet he was in the room. He was in the room. When Mary walked in the room, no one could see Jesus. Jesus was in the room through her womb. And then when he's born, he's whisked off as a refugee to Egypt for three or four years. Nobody really gets to see Jesus there, but he's still at work. And then virtually nothing. Have you noticed in your Bible when you've gone searching for the first, the details of his first 30 years on earth? You get one small story of when he's kind of, he loses his parents in a crowd and goes off and he's having dialogue with the religious leaders. You get that fun, playful story there where you just go, Jesus isn't like any other 12, 13-year-old boy. He's a different category. But that's basic. You don't get any details for 30 years. He's just kind of hanging out with Joseph as a carpenter's son, making footstools and wood benches in the shop. That's Jesus that nobody could really see him at that point, but he's working. He's working that way, and he's near. And I think that's a good, I think that's a good narrative for us today. I don't know if you've seen this meme that's going around. I put it up here. Go ahead and put it up on the screen for us. This is the meme for 2020 and 2021. I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen this running around for like the dumpster fire of 2020 got kind of put in the dumpster fire of 2021, right? And who knows what 2022 is going to be, but if we were just to kind of sit back and reflect on the last two years of our lives together, 
it could be placed in the category, at least corporately and collectively, as some of the most difficult 22 plus months we've ever lived together as a generation. Just all the multiple layers of things going on. Dumpster fire type stuff. And as a pastor, one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life is to sit with you in the dumpster fire realities of your lives. And let me just say, over the last 22 plus months, I'm going on 28 years of pastoring. I know I'm an old guy around here. So 28 years of, of being in the trenches with all of you and in this thing called local church ministry and caring for souls and trying to love people and sit with people in their spaces of whatever's going on in life. And I can say honestly to you, I, I've never worked as hard as I've worked the last 22 months of my life. It's taken 27 plus years of pastoral experience. I've tried to apply them all in this space of the last 22 months. The combination of just the volume of human need in all of our lives, like life, it's really hard to be a human in the world these last couple of years. And we all know what's that's pressed to the surface of our lives, mine included. It's just hard. And you put like human need intersecting with like the challenges of leading in church, like being a local church leader these last couple of years. It's just been really, really hard. Like the answers that worked before, they don't work anymore. And then some of the, th some of the decisions that you want to make to move things forward, guess what the last couple of years has said? There's a lot of folks with a lot of opinions about a lot of things and makes it challenging to kind of move things forward with any sense of unity. Have you noticed this? I don't think it's just unique to the local church. Many of you leading in various spheres in your own ways have found the same ingredients. So the combination of human need with the challenges of just leading in the local church space for these last two years, I just want to say to you as a church family today, I'm tired. I'm just kind of emotionally mentally, physically, spiritually fatigued. It's, it's not any one thing. It's just the realities of trying to be present in this space with all of you. And I want to, and I know I'm not alone. Some of you are wrapping up 2021 in a very similar space. And I want to offer you what I feel the Lord is offering me in this space. Is that, hey, Eric, all those times you've been on your knees in your office, opening your scriptures and calling out to the Lord for help, all the times you've been sitting with family or friends or circumstances, I have said I don't know more these last two years than I've said my whole life. I don't know. All the stuff that used to be somewhat clear that's become a little more fuzzy on things, all the... All the times when you said, I can't see, and I don't understand, and I'm not sure, Eric, all those times and all those spaces, here's what I want you to see from Joseph and Mary and the narrative on the days after Christmas is this, just because you can't see doesn't mean I'm not near. And I don't think that's a word just for me. I think that's a word for somebody else. It's hard to see the ways God's working. 
in the dumpster fire realities of these last couple of years. And we have no idea what 2022 holds, but here's what we can rest in. We know who holds it. The same God who said he was at work in 2020, the one who's at work in 2021, the one who you may not be able to see clearly what he was doing, but he is near. He is with us. He hears our cry for help. He sees, he knows, he understands, and he's working out his plans and his purposes, even when we can't see, even when we don't know, even when we don't understand. And that we can hold on to this together, church, even when we can't see him in the specific ways he's working. We know he's near. And so worship team, why don't you come on back up? Here's how we're going to wrap up this morning. I want to invite you to take these next couple of songs and um, just use it as a little bit of sacred space to maybe do a little reflection on the year. You know, this is the last Sunday of the year as we kind of pivot from 2021 into 2022, and maybe there's some things you'd just like to lay down in a posture of surrender this morning. Maybe you want to bring your own personal disruption in a fresh way to the Lord. Maybe all the things you had planned for this past year, you recognize as you sit here, they're unresolved, And you just want to take some time and lay those things down again. So the prayer benches, please use those. Take some time. Spend some time praying during these couple of songs together. If you want to pray by yourself, you want to pray with someone, uh, you just come and kneel during these songs and let these lyrics just kind of wash over that space of disruption. Or perhaps the gift of this morning and specifically these next few minutes would be the Lord coming to you, maybe in your own place of personal exhaustion, maybe your own place of weariness, and your own place of mystery and confusion, and I can't see and I don't understand, in a fresh way the Lord's saying, even when you can't see it, I am near, and I'm at work, and you can trust me, that I'm here, and I'll help you get through whatever it is you're going through, and all the ways where the previous answers aren't working anymore more. It thrusts us into this place of dependence on Him. And perhaps you want to come and kneel or use the quietness of your own blue chair where you're at and just kind of work through that space, whether it's the disruption space, whether it's the bringing the fatigue and weariness of the dumpster fire realities of these last two years and saying, I'm going to hold on to this, what Mary and Joseph no doubt had to hold on to many times. Can you picture the number of times Jesus had to hear from Mary and Joseph? Isn't it about time, Jesus? Definitely when he got to be like 16, 17, 18, because in the culture of that day, they were married off with the next stage of family life by the time they're in their late teen years. And here Jesus is just hanging out in obscurity. And the Romans are still ransacking people's lives and there's darkness all over the place. I mean, it was dumpster fire realities in first century Palestine for sure. There's Jesus just patiently waiting for the Kairos moment of God's appointed time. Not at 17, not at 25, but wait till 30. Can you imagine the number of times for Mary and Joseph, their time frame and their plans just had to get disrupted and sifted. And and yet Jesus was always near. He's going to work out his plans. He's going to come through. He's going to deal with the situations that need to be dealt with. Even what feels so final in some of these last couple of years, Jesus wants to remind us it's not the end of the story. 
He's still working out his purposes and he will get the last word. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Use the prayer benches if you like or blue chairs where you're at. Spread out if you like. And let's just take this moment and just respond to the Lord Jesus. Here's our lives the day after. Here we are. So many of us, so much disruption. We had all kinds of things mapped out. That map got burned a long time ago. Here we are. Others just exhausted and weary, fatigued from the cumulative effect of just what is known as everyday life now. And struggling to see how you're at work, but asking you today to demonstrate once again, Emmanuel, that you are with us and you are near. You are here, you see, and you understand. And so we bring the whole of our lives into this space of surrender and we give our full attention to you.